Welcome to the AERA Writing and Literacy SIG podcast. And this episode's theme is on multilingual literacies, research, and scholarship. In the spirit of community, the podcast team hopes this episode works to highlight important scholarships, push the literacy field, and mentor and cite others. Before we begin our discussion, we'll start with introductions. Um, I'm April Camping from Arizona State University. I'm Marcela Osaparra from Queens College. I'm Renata Lovejones at Georgia State University. And I'm Yalda Cave from Arizona State University. All right, well, thank you everyone for uh, being here for this conversation. Um, the first question uh, we wanted to talk about is what are the main research questions you're each focused on right now? And what questions do you think are important for the field to address in studying multilingual literacies? So in my case, my research questions that I'm focusing on now are related to curriculum design. In particular, how do we design curriculum that integrates students' ways of knowing and being and stimulates their literacy and language development. I'm also interested in understanding how, how my students uh, and students in general, multilingual students, use diverse resources, multimodal resources to make meaning. These include not only their languages, but also gestures um, and different symbolic resources. And another aspect that I'm researching is uh, how do teachers and students negotiate identities in translanguaging space. In my case, my research looks primarily at um, pedagogies and curriculum that honor, sustain, extend the multilingual and multidialectual practices of children, um, especially within uh, literacy classroom context. And I'm very, very interested in the ways that um, children come to deeply understand the literacy practices that they bring from home as well as those that are connected to specific um, literacy tasks, um, maybe even content areas. How are they um, thinking about the, the, the language across those spaces? Um, how are they thinking in nuanced ways about those cross-contextual connections that they're doing when they're switching from place to place. And that's not to say code switching, but we're talking about the intentional critical language awareness um, and metalinguistic awareness that is present in children um, and that they continue to develop as they develop literacy across the lifespan. And so I'm really interested in what that looks like with those conversations and what the play looks like, um, how teachers are facilitating that through the curriculum as well as how they are facilitating those conversations and bridging those conversations um, just generatively. Um, I'm also interested in the ways that children are conscious of bringing in literacies like those church literacies um, or literacies from their gaming 
into the schooling um, context and what does that look like and how do teachers honor that and not shut that down and really use it not only to leverage but uh, or leverage what students are doing in the classroom but also to really encourage students to continue to, to build in those spaces. And for me, I'm working on a few projects right now from a partnership I'm lucky to have with a local dual language school here in Arizona. And the school is a Title I urban school that enrolls predominantly Latinx, Black, Indigenous children. And uh, the work that we're focusing on in general uh, examines the different um, perspectives of different stakeholders in a dual language program, including children, parents, or caregivers, and the educational staff. Right now, one um, or two papers we're working on asks um, about the family engagement practices that supported uh, by multilingual children's learning uh, during the pandemic. Um, so uh, we collected data during the 2020-21 year, and we observed that um, two uh, exemplary kindergarten teachers use the opportunity of homeschooling um, or online schooling to reposition families as co-teachers, as they call them. And they brought in um, many of the cultural practices of families, including oral literacies um, into their family engagement and their day-to-day um, you know, -day practices. So um, as I said, we inquired about the children's perspective on that, the parents and the teachers. I also wanted to add um, that um, when I think about my work, I don't uh, automatically situate it within the literacy field at large, but I wanna give credit to our shared mentor, Dr. Patrick Proctor, who brought us together for an upcoming um, uh, study group for LRA. And he made us remember, or made me remember that multilingual literacy is beyond the dichotomy that we often think about as language and literacy separately. And actually that dichotomy that I have personally internalized uh, makes us forget about the family literacy practices that are very important in the children's development of language and literacy. So I just wanted to share that in case there are others watching and listening who feel the same way if their work concerns families and they don't consider it to be literacy. But as I've come to study this more deeply, I've uh, come to understand that no, it does. And actually that's a very important part of literacy that has been historically ignored in our schools. And that is why we don't often think about it automatically. I think that regarding the research questions that are important to the field, uh, the work that Yalda and Renee are doing, for example, illustrate that important intersection between communities and and schools that are that are so needed to stop thinking that families are a, are not contributing to their students' education, to their children's education. When I when I work with my <coughs> teachers in the in courses, sorry, <coughs> I noticed a very deficit-based perspective uh, on families. <coughs> I think we have overcome the deficit perspective on students, but not on families. And there's this a constant complaint about families not being engaged in their students' a 
education because they don't have the resources. And this idea that families need, need training, need instruction. But so I feel that this research that centers families, communities is very important uh, to, to, to take these uh, deficit perspectives away from the families. So that's one area of research that I consider extremely relevant, as well as the as the areas of teacher preparation, because it's a, we have built important knowledge a, related to um, ensuring these uh, strength-based approaches. But we need to work more with our student teachers to to help them rethink how they teach, particularly because if they learn in a way that didn't honor their, their cultures and their languages and their funds of knowledge, it's very difficult for them to enact a new kind of instruction. What I notice is that when they talk about it, they, they understand the theories, but then they design the lessons and they are the same lessons that they, that they are used to, to learning. And then um, the other aspect that, I, that in my case, I find very interesting is in bilingual education how do we support language development at the same time that we engage our students in project-based learning, particularly when the students are having many opportunities to talk, but they, they, when they're building knowledge, they need to use the language that they are more familiar with and are stronger on. So, so I feel that it's difficult to promote this uh, project-based learning and at the same time support their language development in a way that really, like, how do we have them have those authentic conversations in the new language or in the language that they're learning? That's another area that I feel is important and that many teachers wonder about because by fourth, fifth grade or fifth grade, they are not using, let's say in Spanish, English bilingual programs, they're not using Spanish, they mostly use English because it's the language that they, the societal language and the language that they, they have the greatest command of. I agree with Marcella 100%. And I think that when we don't, we as educators and educational researchers, when we don't take the time to ask families and children about what goes on in their home, um, including the literacy practices, then they, we make all these assumptions about, you know, um, literacy practices in particular at home, like for instance, what Marcella was alluding to, like um, heritage language loss that happens uh, in bi-multilingual children. Uh, what I've noticed in in-service and pre-service teachers, sometimes they shy away from asking families like about their home language practices or even about making recommendations that they should stick to their heritage language if they see appropriate. Um, so they, they say that, oh, it's not my place to talk about it, but, uh, and I can understand that, but then when our you know, language practices in our schools, especially monolingual schools are so, um, hegemonically, you know, in favor of English, then even when we are not discussing what happens at home, we are making uh, implicit recommendations about that, that then inherently it impacts uh, the language and literacy development of children uh, and the family 
practices because in my work with families, I've noticed that, you know, children actually take the lead in shifting what happens at home. So a lot of times by multilingual families and parents, they want to have bilingual children, they want to raise their children bilingually, but, but as their children start to push back on that and use more and more English, then they kind of take a step back. So just goes to show how important it is for educators and families to be in conversation about their shared and common goals, or sometimes if their goals are not shared, then they should discuss that as well. And the last thing I'll say to that in terms of like what the field should think about is to um, you know, take more steps to hear from the children. A lot of times we think that children don't have a lot to say or some topics are you know, too advanced for the children, but in my you know, current research with kindergartners, um, of course the nature of interviews are different with them, but their perspectives are so valuable and important to hear from because they are the ones who are sitting in our classrooms. So I feel really strongly that um, the field at large should do more about hearing from children and also parents and caregivers. I think in one way, the ways that I see the questions that I'm asking really pressing towards um, equity concerns is really thinking about the opportunities within curriculum, within classroom practice for children to see themselves, to, to have their language, their knowledges, their joys, their ways of being, their emerging insights, their playful inquiries really amplified um, for teachers to be conscious in making that space, um, regardless of what the curriculum is in front of them sometimes, but also for, um, for the teachers to be invested in moving the, the students through this really strong autonomous um, thinking that honors whatever literacies they're bringing from whatever space into each and every classroom moment. So that when the children go out into a world, a world that sometimes tells some of us that, you know, our literacies, our knowledges, our ways of speaking are not appropriate or correct or whatever, that the children themselves can then push back and say, nope, wait, <laughs> that's, mm -mm, that's, that's not what I learned. That's not what I've come to understand about myself and my community. Um, and for the, teach, for the teachers and the, the schools, the districts, for them to really be part of that, that journey of making this possible. Um, I remember like when early on, um, Marcella, Yalda and I were working on a curriculum together and there were a lot of questions that came up about even how we present definitions. Um, do we just tell the children what the definition is or do we ask them how they become familiar with it? Um, how have you used this? How have you seen this? Um, is there anything that it makes you think of when you see this? Even those small spaces like that has the opportunity for students to bring in their community and familial knowledges about language. Um, and for them to feel as, as they rightly should that they are the experts on themselves and their literacy, and they're gonna to continue to develop those expertise um, and deeper insights there. And so I think, you know, part of that is um, in these questions, uh, I, I've also thought about what are the books that they get to see their language practices modeled? 
their literacies knowledge are modeled and, and their knowledge modeled. Um, what are the videos that do that? What are the questions that we're asking them to ponder that you know, is really expressive as and not just, this is what the teacher thinks and this is where the student needs to get, but this is how the, the student has come to, to engage the material and what is important to them. And so I think all of these things and how children come to do this work and how students um, are given room to do this and encouraged to do this and, and, and the practice continues to, to maintain over time is a big part of, of how I'm bringing equity into this. I think that um, brings us to a really good piece of the next question the podcast team wanted to ask about um, in terms of ways that you center um, different voices of the people involved in your work and in your research. Um, and when you're talking about um, having the, the kids be experts because they are the experts on themselves and, and their experiences. Um, can you talk about um, other ways that you center student, teacher, family, um, and community voices in your research? Uh, well, as I alluded to earlier, um, my current work focuses on, you know, the perspectives of all stakeholders in a dual language program, including the children, parents, and caregivers, and the educational staff. Um, and I I want to emphasize that most of the families in this community are from BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, you know, communities of color backgrounds. So the ways method-wise uh, I have centered, um, well, question-wise and method-wise I have centered these communities is that, well, first of all, I ask in my research questions, what, what do the children think about their educational experiences in this program? What do parents and caregivers think? And then method-wise, we have been doing um, critical ethnographic work uh, with this community. And in the past year, we had to get really creative about how we could um, gather data. And um, for centering the students, um, I wanna talk about that first. Um, there were a few ways that I wanted to hear from the children. One was just through classroom observations. You know, rather than just focusing on what the teacher is doing, we were paying close attention to how the kids were responding to the teachers and how they were interacting with each other. Mind you that these kindergartners, it was their first experience with school and with their peers, and they were meeting each other online. And there was this one particular conversation during break where the children were asking each other, um, do you live in Arizona? And then one of them said, yes. And the other said, I live in the United States. And um, it was just so neat to just capture that um, and hear how they interacted with each other in this very unique circumstances. And um, we also conducted interviews with these kindergartners and knowing that there are a different age group that I was used to. I mostly had worked with upper elementary children. So we had to get really creative. And um, one of, one of our uh, former colleagues, um, Chris Wagner, he did his dissertation with you know, uh, literacy with kindergartners or first graders. And his work really helped me think more about how to situate the interview. So we did... Uh, uh, a read aloud with a couple books that centered the children's um, cultural and linguistic identities. I want to 
uh, emphasize the plural here. And then we had a group conversation about the book and how they related to the characters. And then afterwards, we followed up the interview, the, the read aloud conversation with interviews. And our third step, which we didn't get to do, given all the changes that went on, was to do uh, portraits um, with the children of their bilingual, um, biliterate, or multilingual, multiliterate identity. So there are many ways uh, we could center you know, children and families in our research. It may just take a few more steps than what we are used to. It doesn't mean uh, it's more difficult. It's actually, in my experience, it's more fun. And then last comment I'll make is that with families too, I've mostly done um, interviews with families, parents and caregivers. And um, yeah, so that's how I try to center my work um, around children and families. It's um, a passion of mine and I actually really enjoy it as I say, um, much more than just doing um, research focused on the teachers. So I like to combine all three and that makes it more cohesive and fun for me. Uh, with my work, uh, the ways that I've gone about attempting to, to center student, teacher, family, and community voice, um, first within the, the classroom practice is really disrupting um, a particular expectation of what students are doing. Um, and so not looking for the right answer, but what is the sense-making answer? What is the, the negotiation of meaning um, that allows um, me to just be curious about how students are playing around with things? Um, I found that to be really helpful in disrupting what is natural in most of us teachers <laughs> wanting people to get to a particular place, a particular endpoint, and to really start to think about learning as a journey. Um, I think doing the same thing with teachers is even more powerful because a lot of times it's easy to sit and, and look at, um, at one's data to look at an observation and to think about how a teacher, oh, like that teacher did that, how I expected, or that was amazing to, you know, really think about what does teacher learning look like in this space? Because we've all gone through school systems um, that have historically privileged a certain type of learning, a certain organizational hierarchy in classes. And so, um, I think that has been both a challenge and a space of growth and learning in my own work to make sure that like, that while I'm really making this effort to center students' voices and experience in the classroom, that I'm also doing the same to kind of listen to where teachers, like what is driving them? What is, what is their, their biggest priority when they come into, um, to a particular activity in the classroom. And then also how do, how do they make sense of it afterwards? How do they continue to make sense of, of it over and across multiple activities as the curriculum continues to progress over the course of the year? Um, recently, I've been working with um, some colleagues here at Georgia State and we've been talking to teachers, parents and administrators about how they are attempting to um, support support their children during what has been a really 
kind of um, rough year um, in a lot of different ways, not just because it was distance learning, not just because it was a pandemic, not just because, you know, every day we were experiencing like this real gaslighting and, and flood of, uh from the news. Um, and so asking all of them, like how they're making sense of it and, and check, doing check-ins across the year has been this really important opportunity to have people's voices and narratives heard as, um, as they navigate, as they negotiate. Um, I think some of the methods that I would encourage others to use some things that I've found really powerful are using the cultural historical activity theory to really make sense of the tools that people are using, um, the goals, implicit and explicit, um, the rules that are guiding people's logic um, as they navigate and, and try to, to move across whatever goal that they're um, attempting to reach. Um, as well as those distributions of labor in this space and how they're making sense of it. Um, as we continue to engage that data, it's been really interesting to hear how, how teachers are making sense of the ways that the classroom space changed because of the virtual world and how they were able to, to really um, take advantage of particular tools and distributions of labor and, and have particular goals. And so I think um, no matter the space or context, that has been a really um, important methodology for me to utilize to really um, unpack like the myriad of factors that are going into the ways that educators or even parents um, and administrators take up learning with their child. Um, it is my hope that pretty soon that we'll have an IRB out that will allow us to ask more of the children because I think they've been doing some fun things with their literacies, whether they've been playing online with their friends um, or finding new ways to engage with, with each other. Um, I think there's some, some real opportunities to hear more about how they themselves have made sense of the year and seen their learning um, shift or change in the year and so I'm really excited about that and I think that that methodology is going to be really helpful. In terms of my my work, a, I center student, teacher, family and community voices uh, through the through an approach to designing curriculum that is focused on the students uh, and on their thinking and making meaning and doing projects that are meaningful to them and engage their families. I, I do action research to understand the, the, the development of this curriculum, how the students are engaging with it, how can I modify it. Um, I pay close attention to the ways in which I also it's it's easy to to again as it happens with my students it happens also to me that um we have deep understandings of the theory but when we act the theories many times they are not accord, so according to what we had envisioned because we have also internalized ideologies and ways of thinking as Renata was mentioning 
that need to be unpacked. So I do critical analysis in, of not only, since I, I, I am trying out these lessons myself about, about my teaching and how this can illuminate a, um, the understanding of how ideologies seep into these spaces that are supposed to be a, a culturally sustaining. Um, I also um, focus on my students' thinking. So like thinking in terms of uh, enacted thinking, situated thinking. So my, my work is very student-centered in that sense. I am bringing in their ideas and, and doing fine-grained analysis of their thinking through their language use, their use of different meaning-making tools to understand what is going on. Um, so that's another way in which I center their, their voices uh, to also understand the teaching process and in terms of how they responded to, to that teaching process. Um, so in, right now I'm focused on action research, but um, other methods that I would like to explore and that I recommend uh, would be useful for researchers to, to do, to center students, families, communities, voices, are a participatory action research that would enable a deeper community engagement or deeper engagement, student engagement in deciding what they want to learn. A photo voice is an interesting approach and thinking about other visual approaches that would bring other modalities and, and that way we could center a, other ways of, of making, making meaning that go beyond the traditional texts. Um, so those would be other approaches to research that I recommend and that I'm interested in trying out in the future. So um, in thinking about those, these spaces where you're, you're doing this work and these, the methods you're, you're using and the voices you're trying to center, there's a lot, there's a lot to manage. And um, I know for emerging scholars and researchers, um, you know, and researchers and scholars who have been doing this work for a long time, there are a lot of challenges that we face. So a question we've discussed on, on Twitter chats and questions that the podcast team has um, received or thought about um, center a little bit on, on these challenges. And, um, describing them and um, making them clear and known for others can be helpful um, when we work to address them. So a third question we had for you was, um, what challenges have you encountered in your work? You've already kind of addressed some of that, um, but what did you do in response? And what advice do you have for other researchers and um, other scholars who are facing these challenges? Thank you, April. So I think one of the challenges that I've had, um, I, one of my mentors um, from undergrad, the beautiful pastoral counselor who um, also did a lot of work in Afrocentric knowledge and learning and spent a lot of time in Ghana. And she used to always tell me, everything is everything. Everything is everything. And I think I embraced that a little bit too much. <laughs> um, it's definitely um, been 
both the beauty and the challenge of the work that I do. Um, trying to, to understand and hold all the things while finding what, what is the one question that I can answer in this paper or for this moment or that that matters. And it, it doesn't mean that I can't go back to the other directions, to the other thoughts that emerged in the midst of it. But really, you know, again, how do I pause <laughs> and say, okay, like I know that I'm interested in children's practices and perspectives and their, their metalinguistic engagement. I know that I'm interested in homes and communities and their desire for their children and their youth. I know that I'm interested in schools and districts and, and teachers practice and I know that I'm interested in the curriculum but I cannot it's really long right and so how does one find what is most in, in, in is essential and important for the moment the thing that needs to be shared the thing that needs to to be heard and, and played with and understood and built on how does one locate that and say, this is what I'm going to do right now. Um, and it's okay. It's okay. I don't have to do the whole chicken deal meal at once. Um, that has been, um, I think, one of my greatest challenges. And, and I think, you know, being able to talk it out with colleagues and peers, being able to, um, to, to write out, okay, here are all the different directions that this data is suggesting, but this is, this is what I'm going to run with right now. And, and having some peer um, engagement with that. Um, I think the other thing is, again, if I'm centering students and centering communities and centering teachers, I have to ask them what they're most interested in. Like what, what is pressing to them? What are they like? Oh, like, I really want to understand this better. Or I really want this to look and feel better when I'm engaging it. And so really also, you know, sometimes putting my own, like, this is what I would do right now, aside a little bit and being able to, to work in collaboration and partnership so that the needs of those that I'm working with are actually getting met because that's part of the reason why we came in to, to do this to, to begin with so that people can have better schooling and educational experiences so that their literacies can be can be heard um and and so yeah I, I think that's part of how I, I've wrestled with that like what do I do this is so much <laughs> really um pausing In my case, I have, there are many challenges. I think that the love of this work is what keeps, keeps me going, but it's been challenging. Um, so I, I, my first challenge that came to my mind has to do with something that is external and that is out of my control. And it is the funding for work that does not focus on outcome measures. So it's very difficult to find funding for the work that we do. So because a, like large funds, you can get small funds, but if you want, like, I think that 
to do research in this area, you need to convince yourself that you're going to do small studies. Large scale studies are difficult or you would, uh, or you would need to be really creative about designing some outcome measures, but those are totally, like it's difficult to align. And uh, yes, Renata, so for example, the IES, the Institute of Education Sciences only funds uh, studies that have uh, outcome measures. They also have established um, some areas of priority for funding that do not include Spanish. They include uh, other languages, but not Spanish, which is very discouraging because uh, still the, the population, the biggest population that speaks another language in the United States is Spanish. But since I guess there is enough research or there are enough resources for the IES, their area of uh, focus right now are other languages. So again, you have to learn how to uh, frame your research in such, such way that it's not only focused on Spanish. That Renata and I have been working on some ways of, of doing this. But so that is one aspect uh, that, that has been that I envision as being challenging in the future. Right now, I am focused on building my, my research agenda and I don't feel ready to, to apply for one of these grants. And I wonder if I will ever apply because uh, perhaps their philosophy does not fit with mine. And in that sense, it, that just keeps me away from doing these large studies that are very valued in the education field. So it's like, choosing the most difficult path. We are not the only ones. There are many people who have led the way and have shown us that it's possible to do it, given us the example, but we are choosing a, diffi a difficult and different path. Um, and then another aspect that I've, I've found challenging in, in the city where I, wor I work, in New York City, is getting access to schools. So the DOE has created a far fortress. The IRB is very difficult to navigate and the studies that they allow are very limited. So, and they have a vision like of experimental research. And do not have the research. So that's been also like navigating these external things have been difficult. And it's sad because the principals are interested in the work, but the, the DOE has established very strict requirements that make a access to schools almost impossible. For example, during the pandemic, no access to schools unless the research was related to the pandemic, strictly related to the pandemic offering extra instruction, that was not the pandemic. <laughs> so that didn't fit as related to the pandemic. And regarding myself as a researcher, eh, as, a, as a bilingual woman, a eh, Colombian, it's very difficult to do, to, to find a space, eh, produce in the role that I have internalized that I should produce. I'm not sure. I don't think that's the level that my college wants me to produce, but it's something that I feel some kind of pressure to, that you need to do this. And it's not, it's not easy. And that is 
always in my mind, particularly also if you have kids and life, everyone has life that makes it very difficult. So the, the production is complicated and I feel that there is, there is this um, disconnect between producing quality work and producing quantities of work. And many times we find ourselves trying to cut a paper in the fewest pieces in order to produce more papers, or we find ourselves trying to, to take on more, more activities than we can in order to produce, but many times forgetting about the quality and the, the real contributions that, are, that we're making to the field. So, so I think that that has been something that I didn't envision when I took this job or when I chose this uh, profession that are that have been extremely challenging in the present and I hope uh, to really learn to not use others as my as my criteria as my meter just use myself as my meter and to really understand what I'm trying to contribute and not focus on quantity but quality but taking like doing this reflection internalizing it and forgetting about all the other uh, outside expectations is very it's a it's a path that takes takes long to 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 go through it so yes that those would be in summary the three challenges that I the most relevant or most pressing challenges that I, that I faced during the past three years. Can I just say I, I love our discussion and this question very much and that just goes to show that in academic spaces maybe we should talk more about the challenges. I think we don't go to many conferences where researchers like when they lay out methodologies they also discuss challenges. And I think for emerging scholars, when you are the recipient and the audience of somebody who's, you know, who's got it all figured out, then you think that like, you, I can't possibly do that. But I think that's what, that's because people, you know, show their best image in those uh, spaces. But I think it's very important for us to hear about the challenges. And I'm lucky that with my sister scholars here, we are often in conversation about some of the challenges they mentioned as they said, the funding for qualitative ethnographic work sadly is not supported by large grants that much. You're always pushed to mix in some of the quantitative aspects with then when it's not true to you, it comes through to the funders as well. So I guess one um, solution I would add to that would be to partner up with somebody who's good at that. So that way you're not faking something that you're not interested uh, in or good at, you are partnering with somebody and then through the process, maybe you will learn more about those methodologies. And then IRB, as Marcella said, I know she has had many challenges. Thankfully here, uh, I had better luck, but I wanna emphasize that when we are emerging scholars, we are often, you know, we take jobs that are different from the context we went to grad school or we left. So the context of the state, the city are very new to us. So it takes time to build relationships, to meet people in the schools, in the districts, in DOE. So give yourself that grace period. And one tip I have for those who are doing their doctoral dissertation study is to 
collect a lot of data now that you have the opportunity. So while you're trying to figure out your postdoctoral research, you have data from your dissertation to work on and generate um, you know, publications and meet your institutional criteria. While you're trying to take your time and figure out new avenues for your research. Now with research with multiple stakeholders, like my sisters, I've faced many challenges. One is that it takes time to build trust with school. So give yourself time to build that trust. Don't, you know, approach schools with um, this pre-figured out, you know, agenda that I want to come here and I want to research you and your community. As Renata mentioned, be open to what they are interested in, maybe approach them in, uh, and say, you know, here are some areas I'm interested in exploring, but I want to meet with you and your staff to like hear what questions you are interested in. In my case, actually, it took me a year and a half to just hang out with the school and with the teachers um, because we were figuring out our IRB, but that really worked to our advantage because we built that trust before we turned on the mic and we said, you know, let's roll the you know recording. So um, I really encourage you to think about that. I know we are facing pressures to produce as my sisters mentioned, but figure out a way to have, to always have, I know Marcella and I talked about how you should always have like, you know, this three-step process. You know, you have the, your data that you're focusing on, then you are collecting data and maybe you're thinking about future projects. So I know that's a lot, but I think that's what it takes to do if you don't want to like rush things. You always have to have that process brewing. And um, so with the methods themselves, with the challenge of those, um, I mentioned trust with the community, but then working with parents uh, is challenging because they are busy, especially if you work with marginalized families, sometimes they have, you know, more than one job that they have to work at. Um, they're not sometimes comfortable with uh, meeting with you at the school. Bear in mind that school can be a threatening space for some of our marginalized families. So um, we should be very open in terms of time, space, methods when we work with marginalized communities. Obviously be cognizant of linguistic um, barriers that we create for families. And sometimes we just think about, you know, English, Spanish, but there are other ways like the English varieties, the way we talk in our academic institutions is not always accessible um, to all of our families. So be uh, respectful of that when you co conduct the interviews. So that's been a challenge. I've even become cognizant of how I dress when I go to the school, you know, how I'm positioning myself because I'm an outsider and I know that, but um, you know, how do you like tone it down a little? And then the last thing I'll say is the challenge of working with the children. Um, as I mentioned before, it's extremely important to take the time and work with children and hear from them, but there, it has its own challenges. They don't respond to interview questions the same way we do with adults. So one thing I was reminded as the conversation went on, for example, um, like Renata was saying, sometimes we have our theories and methods and we're not uh, open to changing them. But um, when we were designing our interview methods for the children, we spent hours developing what we thought was this child-friendly um, Likert scale of emojis to show to the kids how they feel when they use Spanish and English or their other heritage languages. 
Um, and then we were doing these interviews over Zoom and I pulled up the Likert scale of emojis and I said, well, can you like uh, point or tell me how you feel when you use your language? And then the kid <laughs> tells me that, well, you know that Zoom has a reaction, uh, you know, function. <laughs> we can just use that. <laughs> I was like, brilliant. Like me and my team of doctoral students never thought about that. That this, you know, five-year-old, she said, you know, there's this Zoom reaction that we could use is much easier. And that's just a brilliant reminder of how, you know, no matter how we think, how much we think we know with our fancy degrees and education, there is valuable knowledge in the communities that sometimes, unfortunately, we think the least of. So I want to close it at that, um, my answer on this question. So there are challenges, but there are also beauties um, hidden in those um, communities. So be open, um, I would say. Um, don't go in with your agenda, be open to change. Wow, thank you all so much for these responses. I, I feel like that's a really great piece, um, a great way to close this conversation, but I also feel like um, a part two and a part three and a part four um, would be great to have. Um, but we'll, we'll end this here. And again, I wanted to thank all of you um, for being willing to participate today and for uh, raising all these important um, topics and addressing these, these questions that, um, that the research and scholarship community has in terms of multilingual literacies. So um, thank you once again, and hopefully we can continue the conversation soon.